Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Father Chris Alar here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. And it is an honor to be with you because the next several weeks we are going to be addressing those talks that you have requested the most that we talk about. And they are Vatican II, communion in the hand or not. And we're going to start today with the Latin Mass the extraordinary form of the Latin Mass. What is church teaching right now? Has it changed? Are we allowed freely to attend this Mass, which is better than Novus Ordo or the extraordinary form? And it's not the great way, the best way to look at it, but we're going to cover all this. And I said to the group here that there's so much good information, I may have to split the talk. So we're either going to go real short or a little long. So let's just see what we're going to do. But let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow, the grace to lead us all to eternal life. And through the power of the liturgy, through the sacrifice of the Mass, may we worship you and may we find salvation. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In fact, I just had that conversation with a brother last night. And the quiz at the table was, what's the purpose of the Mass? And you know, it's interesting because we're all priests. And yet we all had different answers. Salvation. We had, you know, that's obviously, but the number one reason for the mass is to worship God. And it follows the church because the church, as has been all the way back to the temple of the Old Testament, has prescribed rituals. And people say, I'm not in a man-made church, Father Chris. I don't believe in all these rituals. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. God made it clear how to worship him. So what about the New Testament? Jesus made it clear how to worship him in the upper room, right? The words of the mass. All the words of the mass are scriptural. And so let us talk about this. Now, as you saw from the first slide, we are doing the topic today, a very important topic on the Latin mass or the extraordinary form of the mass. Why is this so important right now? Okay, Satan's, do you know in the church we have sacraments? We have sacramentals, right? And I'm already determined I'm going to split this talk, by the way. So <laughs> we have sacraments and we have sacramentals. We know the seven sacraments, foremost, baptism, confession, holy communion. But we also have sacramentals, things that draw us into the sacraments, Right? Right now, Satan's sacraments, abortion, sodomy, these are the act. And how does he draw you in? Through his sacramentals of pornography, uh, social media, TikTok. These are subtle. The sacramentals are what draw you in like a sacramental for us is a brown scapula and it wants us to find salvation so it draws us to the mass the actual sacrament of the eucharist or the sacrament of confession i repent so satan's sacraments 
are getting more and more. And yet, while they're getting stronger, more prevalent, we need the church's sacraments and sacramentals of Christ's church, but they seem to be getting weaker and weaker. Now, that does not mean at all the grace is not there. The sacraments are always full of grace. What is getting weaker? Our psychological perception of them. We don't think they're needed anymore. People aren't even baptizing their children anymore. And so this is importance between what a sacrament is. Now, how do we get the sacraments? Through the rites of the church, R-I-T-E-S, through the rituals. Many people know that there's different rites within our Catholic church. But do they know what they mean? We have sacraments celebrated in different ways. Now, the essence is the same, but we have different rites. You have the Byzantine, how, or the Eastern Church, how they receive Holy Communion in a different way, where it's in tinction with the, before you receive the body of Christ, it's, it's dipped in the blood and put with a tongue on your spoon. We receive it differently here, kneeling. But it's the same sacrament. Just like the Mass is the same Mass, whether it's the extraordinary form or the ordinary form we celebrate, Novus Ordo. Now, a lot of people will argue, though, it's the way it's delivered that makes a difference. Now, I heard somebody just explain this the other day that says, the extraordinary form of the Mass is like this most incredible grilled, flavored, thick, beautiful steak, and the Novosordo is like the same steak, but put into a microwave. It's the same steak. And we're going to talk about that. So we can't reject either one. They are both USDA top grade. They are both the best. But the whole confusion in the church is about how, how we make that steak and eat that steak. How do we prepare the sacraments and how do we receive the sacraments? That's the question. Now, as the church grew, it celebrated the sacraments as best understood by the individual cultures. All right. But the essence, as I said, the character of the sacrament never changed. How they do it or the way they do it does, but the form and matter, the words and the actions don't. You still have water on baptism. That's the matter. And the form, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't change. Now, this is what's interesting. The early church sought to evangelize first in the major cultural centers of where? Do you remember? Where did the church first appear? People usually say Rome and Constantinople. Eh. Rome is correct. Where are the other two cultural centers where the church began? And in fact, Peter was before he was the bishop of Rome. Antioch. And where's the other one? Alexandria. So Antioch is in Syria, and Alexandria is in Egypt. Ironic, now overtaken by Islam. Let us pray. Now, all rites in use today evolve from the practices used in those cities. Rome, 
Antioch, Alexandria. Let's look at our next slide. There's a picture of the ancient churches. Beautiful, beautiful. So all rites in use today came from them. As the Bishop of Rome, the Pope is the head of the Latin rite or the Roman rite. That's what most of us here watching today are. You're probably part of the Latin or the Roman or the Western Rite. This is by far the biggest rite in the church. It was founded by who? St. Peter. Jesus actually founded the Catholic Church. But St. Peter in 42 AD, so only nine years after our Lord established this rite, and because of that, Latin became the universal language of the church. That's why we call us the Latin rite. Okay? This is important because people heard the readings and homilies. Yes, they were proclaimed in their native languages. You know, one of the mistakes I think about those who jump on the Novus Ordo Mass is they think that everything should be in Latin. And that's beautiful because Latin is the universal language of the church. And you know what's interesting? Latin is the language of the body of Christ. A body speaks, right? You have a body. You speak. You speak a language. Do you know what the exorcists tell us? The exorcists tell us that whenever Latin is spoken, the demons flee in tear, terror. That's why I had my room blessed in Latin because when the demons hear it, that's the language spoken by the body. This is the body. We are the body of Christ. And when the body speaks, it speaks Latin. That's the official language of the church. So it makes sense. However, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because although Latin is the language of the church, it doesn't mean there can never be the vernacular, meaning the local language. A lot of people think the vernacular just came after, nine, after Vatican II. Actually not true. Father Kaz called me this morning. And he was just checking up on me that I don't cause too much controversy in this talk today. God bless him. But he pointed out that, don't forget, that back before languages even existed, like the European languages, in the Middle Ages, like the Slovak, where I'm, I, I come from, Moravian and Slovakian and Yugoslavian, or now Croatian, I mean, or should say Croatian, so he's been Croatian, before they even existed, back in the earliest centuries, they spoke Latin true, but when those languages became formed, they did speak in the vernacular, even way before Vatican II, a thousand years before Vatican II. They did speak in their local languages. So let's not be too quick to condemn that practice, okay? We'll talk about that more in a minute. So this is important. So the people um, would hear the readings and the homilies proclaimed in their native language, even though the mass was in Latin. Now, there are older forms than the Latin mass. People always always think that the mass began with the Trinitine form, and that's like the most ancient form. No, it's actually not. Pius V, during the time of Trent, actually said all the rites that are over 200 years older, we're going to keep them. We're talking about the Dominican rite, the ancient Carmelite rite, and we're actually going to keep them. 
They were celebrated way before the development of the Trinity Mass. In fact, a lot of the reading from our current Novus Ordo Mass is more ancient than the Missal of the Trinitine Mass. Now, does that mean it's better? No, older does not always mean better. Even though when it comes to Detroit Lions, my dad always thinks so. You, you kind of look at it that way. But we had in this Mass, this Nova Soto Mass, traditions that a lot of people don't recognize. And we'll talk more about that probably next week. <laughs> okay, so these older forms, older than the Trinity Mass, Dominican, Franciscan, Mazarabic, these all were older. Let's look at our next slide. Now, there has also been many liturgical reforms in the Latin Rite between Trent and the Missal of Paul VI. Here's a picture of Paul VI. Now, this Missal that we use is called the Roman Missal. You can see it. This is what we use in the current Mass. This is known as the Missal of Paul VI. This is the Missal after Vatican II. And Philip, would you be able to run? My car's parked out right in front. I have the 62 Missal in my back seat. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Missal we use in the Novus Ordo Mass. And so when we reference the Missal, this is what we're talking about. Now, Paul VI, as you can see on your screen, is often criticized because we talk about this missile like it was, there was never a revision in the church before. That's not true. There were many uh, uh, changes, liturgical developments of the missile, multitude of times before Paul VI. We're going to talk about more of that. <clears throat> now, the traditionalists, and I, I'm going to use the term modernists and traditionalists, okay? I am a traditionalist. We're not saying necessarily I'm a radical traditionalist. They would go so far as to reject the Novus Ordo Mass. You know that I celebrate the Novus Ordo Mass. And so, and I'm not saying all traditionalists are radical, not by any means. And, and so there's been liturgical, liturgical reforms. So the traditionalists would argue that the changes that came from Trent up until Vatican II were minor. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Were minor compared to the changes made after Vatican II, the Novus Ordo Mass. The traditionalists, and again, I consider myself a traditionalist, just not a radical, okay? Traditionalists would argue that these have been small up until Vatican II, but after Vatican II, they became way off base, way too much. That's the accusation. So to speak, though, of an unchanged or unchanging mass before Vatican II is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. What do I mean? All right, let's look at our next slide. The Missal approved for the celebration of the TLM or the Latin Mass is the Missal of John the 23rd. There's a picture of it on your screen and maybe Mark can zoom in. This is the actual daily Missal you can see right here says 1962, 
So the daily missile, this is what they call a hand missile, because inside it has Latin on the left and it has English on the right. Okay, some are just Latin. Now they print some in just English, I believe. But we don't celebrate the extraordinary form traditionally in English. We celebrate it in Latin. So this is what we're looking at. So this missile that was approved for celebration of the Latin Mass is the missile now called of John the 23rd. It's to celebrate the extraordinary form. But as you'll hear me say either later today or next week, unfortunately, we don't use the term extraordinary form anymore. That has been changed with the motto proprio from Pope Francis. Traditionis um, custodes, custodes. So we'll talk about that. Now, this missile of John the 23rd, the 1962 missile, is a result of a long process of reform of the liturgy since Pius V of Trent. So in other words, the accusations that this missile that we use today in the Mass went through a bunch of changes in reform really is kind of an interesting argument because the same thing happened to this missile between Trent and 1962. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all the same. Some of the changes may be significantly more concerning to some people. So let's look at this. Now, why was there a need for reform in the liturgy? All right. Some say Vatican II intended a radical break with the past to make liturgy, well, the intent was relevant, but others claim that the council's reform, Vatican II, of the liturgy was basically nefarious. It was a, a nefarious work that few people determined would destroy the church. Now, let's look at our next slide. You ever heard of Archbishop Annabella Bugnini? Bugnini? This is a very interesting subject. I am not going to get into speculation. I am not going to get into conspiracy theories. But there are many from the Vatican at that time who have stated the concerns with this particular member who was instrumental in the Vatican II process. I'm not condemning Vatican II. I'm a, I'm a priest celebrating the Novus Ordo Mass. But the stories that have come out, we don't know. We pray. Everything from he was a Mason to that he would tell Pope VI he was the, the liaison between the Holy Father and the, and the um, Cilium, this, the group of the church that was tasked um, with, with the changing of the, of the rubrics of the Mass and the, and the reform of the, of the liturgy. And the story goes by several people is that he would tell Pope Paul VI one thing, and Paul VI would be like, that doesn't make sense. And he would say, well, the whole... The whole concilium wants it. And so Paul VI would say, that doesn't make sense, but okay. And then he would go back to the concilium and he would say, this is what we're doing. They'd say, no, why are we doing that? And he would say, because Pope Paul VI wants it. And later, when that came out, it became shocking. 
You can see a lot of this. Again, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorists. I'm just stating what has been stated by one of the priests, a couple of the priests that work closely in Vatican II. Now, there's many positives, and we're going to talk about those too. I'm not, I'm not condemning anything or anybody. I'm going to give you both sides for you to pray and make sense of this. All right, so as a result, there was a long process of reform of the liturgy. Not only from Paul the Sixth, uh, excuse me, from Pius V and Trent up until 1962, but from 1962 to the missile we have today. Now, why was there a reform, as I said? Well, let's listen to what Pope Benedict said. Let's look at our next slide. Pope Benedict issued a modo proprio himself called Sumorum Pontificum in 2007. All right. In, in, in it, he intended to permit wide use of the extraordinary form, which he used that term. He created that term. We're going to talk about that alongside the ordinary form. So the ordinary form or the Novus Ordo is the typical mass we celebrate today. And there's nothing typical about it. But the ordinary mass that you may be used to. And again, there's nothing ordinary about it. The extraordinary form, or what we call the TLM, or the Latin Mass, or the extraordinary form, that is the one that we're talking about. So Pope Francis issued, or uh, Pope Benedict issued this, and he says that you can celebrate it. This doesn't suggest, or doesn't this suggest that no reform was needed? Doesn't this suggest that if Pope Benedict said, I want to bring back the Latin Mass, that it never really should have been reformed in the first place, right? That's a lot of questions from the traditionalists. Many believe the liturgical forms after Vatican II represented a rupture, a discontinuity with the entire history of the church's liturgy. But Benedict said these liturgical reforms are in continuity with the church's history. All right. He said the liturgical reform was needed. So those of you who love Pope Benedict, but you reject Vatican II, you got a quandary there. Okay? You got a quandary. So he said liturgical form was needed. And he used the term hermeneutic of continuity. I'm going to get a little detail here, but this is one of the things I learned in seminary that I'd never heard before and I want to share with you. When I was down in North Carolina and I was teaching my catechism class, I applied to teach seventh grade catechism and I had to go through the fingerprinting and all and all that good stuff. And then I've told the story before, I, I started teaching out of the Baltimore catechism, pre-Vatican II. And the DRE, the director of religious ed, came to me and shocked. Like, what are you teaching? I said, Baltimore Catechism. <gasps> That's so pre-Vatican II. I'm like, so? I thought I was going to be canned my first day on the job as seventh grade catechism teacher. And so the whole point was she was labeling it, oh, we don't want anything to do with that. That's that's ancient. That's so pre-Vatican II. It doesn't apply today. But at the same time, the church that I came from before that was rejecting of almost everything Vatican II. 
to the point that many members believe that the mass that we have today, the Novus Ordo Mass, is invalid. We're going to talk about that. And so what Pope Benedict says is, uh-uh. There has to be a continuity, a hermeneutic of continuity, that we need both pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II, because it's part of the process of development, not changing the meaning of the Mass, fostering in it a way to worship God that grows as we grow, as a church. And so this hermeneutic of continuity was saying that we need both pre and post Vatican II. There was liturgical reform before Vatican II. A lot of the traditionalists, and I was one of them, that was concerned about the reform after Vatican II. But then I learned in seminary, Pius X did a reform in 1903 with restoration of sacred music. Even Vatican II never got rid of sacred music. It says Gregorian chant has the primary place in the worship, in the liturgy. Sacred music. And it actually defines only organ. Guitars and drums and stuff like that are really not defined. All right. So Pius X, he had a reform in 1903 restoring the sacredness of the music. Did you know Pius XI in 1928 had an encyclical on the liturgy and music? Divini Cultus, 1950s, Pius XII. Pius XII reformed the celebration of Holy Week. So it's not unprecedented. Key encyclicals on the liturgy. Mediator Dei, 1947. Musicae Sacrae, 1955. They helped reform the church, the liturgy. Not undo it. By Vatican II, the liturgical movement had made some progress in understanding the, the role of the, the laity in the church. That was the main purpose, but mistakes were made. Right? Nobody's going to argue this. Even, even both sides of the aisle of the Catholic Church, which there shouldn't be, we should all be together, don't argue this. The Second Vatican Council, let's take a look at our next slide. This is a picture of the Second Vatican Council. All right. The fathers of Vatican II made their very first work. What was the very first thing that the fathers did at Vatican II? The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, known as Sacrosactum Concilium, 1963, reaffirming the central and indispensable role of the liturgy in our life. The Church Fathers called for a liturgical reform, stressing again the participation of the laity in the order of the liturgy that would become the center or should become the center of every Catholic. So the whole point of Vatican II, and I'm going to do a whole talk on Vatican II in the next couple weeks, was to involve the laity. Now, however, if you really understand the Latin Mass, you'll see that you can be involved in the liturgy without having to be up here reading or, or dancing in fact, many will argue you participate more in the Latin Mass. Why? Because what's the biggest thing lacking in the world today? Silence. So, we hope that this was the true objective of the liturgical form of Vatican II. We hope 
It authorized more use of the vernacular in the liturgy, which did exist prior, I like that, along with Latin. The Council Fathers could not and did not foresee, however, the rapid disappearance of all of Latin. That was not their intent. They mentioned Latin in the documents. They would never intended that Latin disappear completely from the Mass, nor could they have imagined the radical departure from the Church's traditional liturgical practice. So let's talk about this. This new liturgical movement. All right. The Council's reform, now I keep saying the Council, I mean Vatican II, was needed in a way, but errors resulted from the Council. Okay, everybody acknowledges this. John Paul II even said, quote, the time has come to renew the spirit that inspired Sancrosanctum Concilium. So he even said that somehow we're, we're getting off track. JP2 set in motion a plan to get the liturgy back on course. All right, a new liturgical movement. So here's Ratzinger. Let's look at our next picture, our next slide. There's Cardinal Ratzinger. Now there is Pope Benedict. He said, there is no doubt that this new missile, this one of the Mass, he said, there is no doubt that the new missile, in many respects, brought with it real improvement and enrichment. But the Mass is not the product of man's creation. The Mass comes from God alone. And he said, I am convinced that the crisis in the church, what was he talking about? The loss of the sacredness in the liturgy that we are experiencing today. Now, this is long after Vatican II. Is due to the disintegration of the liturgy. The community is not, not to be only celebrating itself, an activity that is utterly fruitless, we need a liturgical reconciliation that again recognizes the unity, that's that continuity, right, hermeneutic, of the history of the liturgy and that understands Vatican II. So he's still saying we need Vatican II, not as a breach, but as a stage of development. These things are urgently needed for the life of the church. He said that in Milestones, his memoirs. Now, the rupture that we had, that he was talking about, was it, would you call it more a rupture or more a reform? Or both? All right, Pope Benedict said, the answer to this mess lies in the correct interpretation of the ad application of the Second Council of Vatican II in its proper hermeneutics. Quote, there is an interpretation that I would call a hermeneutic of discontinuity, rupture, but there's also the hermeneutic of reform or the hermeneutic of continuity, of renewal in the continuity of the church. She develops the church, yet always remains the same. It's kind of like you as a person. You know that you develop, but you're still the same person. God isn't going to meet you at your judgment and say, well, you know what? I'm going to have two judgments because you really, you know, you're really a different person. No, you're the same person but you developed, you had a conversion, you found God. So the hermeneutic of discontinuity said risks causing a split in the church between pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II. That's the reason Francis gave why he restricted the Latin mass. Is that he doesn't want to see this further division. 
Now, I see the division on both sides. I have great friends. One just texted me the other day, says, you know, I love the reverence of the Latin Mass. But when I go there, all I am is attacked because I still go to the Norvus Ordo. I'm told it's invalid. And she says, it bothers me, so I'm not going back. That should never happen. At the same time, we should never tell somebody that wants to attend the traditional Latin Mass that they shouldn't or they can't. That's not true. Where it's celebrated now, Pope Francis has restricted, and we'll talk about that. But you and I have people that I know that say, if I can't find an extraordinary form of Mass, I will not go to Mass. Now, the problem with that is if you have a Catholic Mass with an easy driving distance, a Novus Ordo, and you can't find an extraordinary Mass because it's 200 miles away and you can't get there in time, you're actually, according to the teaching of the Church, under the penalty of grave sin. So let's not affect, you should never be affected by the way you receive the body of Christ. Even if that mass is irreverent, bring it up. Talk to the bishop. Talk to the pastor. Not condemning the, 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 the either form of the mass. At the same time, we're not condoning irreverence. Okay? So now... Benedict XVI continues, some think it would be necessary not to follow the text of Vatican II, but just the spirit. I hear that a lot. The spirit of Vatican you know, um, is one thing. The texts are another. But this shows a basic misunderstanding of the nature of the council, he said. He said the riches of the liturgical renewal haven't even been fully seen yet. Boy, I hope so. I hope we've got something better coming because we're losing members. We have people falling asleep in mass. Nobody yet in this talk that I see, but we're working on it. Now, he says that there's riches that haven't even been explored yet. So do we need the old mass, a new mass, or do we keep today's mass? This is a very interesting question. Some want to be only post-Vatican II, modernists. Others want to be only pre-Vatican II to the highest level of a radical traditionalist. Now, Benedict is basically saying we need to improve the future, but don't cut off the past. So let's look at this. The form of the Mass is not doctrinal. This Mass. We hear that a lot. I saw a great... I was doing so much research for this. I was talking to priests. I was talking... And, and this article by Charles, Father Charles Grandin on Catholic Answers really summarized it. I, I want to pull for some of this because he said some argue that the Novus Ordo Mass or even the sacraments of the Novus Ordo are not valid. He said in one sense the church has complete authority to structure the mass and determine the language used for the mass. The church has that authority. Okay? And the sacraments. To say otherwise is to deny the authority of the Pope, the church, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The church has that authority, but at the same time, we can't abuse it. Okay? Cannot be abused. The argument of the modernists might say, reform was needed. We needed reform. And the radical traditionalists might say, no reform was needed, or even just traditionalists. I put myself in that category. Did we really need a reform? Seemed powerful enough to me that Benedict brought it back. So let's look at our next slide. 
Modernists would say at the Council of Trent, Pius V, the Pope at the time, there's a picture of him. Do you know that he eliminated many older rites that existed? Did you know that? So many modernists will point to Pope Pius V and say, there you go. He crushed those other rites so that we could have only one. That's exactly what Pope Francis is telling us he wants to do. He doesn't want two rites. Even though Benedict said they're two forms of the same rite, extraordinary form, ordinary form, Francis said, I, I want one. I don't want any confusion. So the modernists will say, well, there you go. Pope Pius V crushed those other rites. He shut them down. He got rid of them. You know what? He only did to those within 200 years of Trent. You know what happened right before Trent? What happened right before Trent? Come on, Catholics. The Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. So a lot of those rites were getting permeated. They even became heretical. How ironic that he said, I'm getting rid of all the rites, but if they're older than 200 years old, they can stay. Ah, now all of a sudden the modernist goes, uh-oh, I didn't know that. Now at the same time, the traditionalist can't say that there never needs to be a reform because Pius V did a reform. You see the balance here? So Pius V eliminated many of the older rites that existed. The traditionalists say yes, but he eliminated those rituals that were heretical from the Reformation. Pius V permitted any ritual of the Mass that was older than 200 years from that point to continue alongside the Trinitine Mass. Modernists will come back and say, but there were several revisions of the Roman Rite leading up to Vatican II. So why are you mad at the one that came after Vatican II? The modernists will say we had several revisions before Vatican II. You don't have a problem with that, but you got a problem with the one after Vatican II. And the traditionalists will say, yeah, but the matters of doctrine are unchanging and universal. Now, here's what's interesting. They'll, they'll say Vatican II changed that. The matters of doctrine are unchanging and universal. That is true, but not the mass. The Mass is a discipline. It's an act of worship. So the modernists will say that exact form of the Mass has never, ever been completely unchanging or completely universal. Well, wait a minute, Father, Catholic means universal. No, what they mean is that in certain cultures, the Mass will look different. When Brother Mark put together Last Divine Mercy Sunday, all of our Marian locations around the world, the ones in Africa were fascinating. Totally different in the way that we experience it, but the core's not. Now we're talking, the doctrine doesn't change. The, the, the words of consecration, the Eucharist, that doesn't change. But the way it is celebrated does. So the modernists will say, the exact form of the Mass has been neither unchanging or universal throughout the history of the church. It is always changed by basis of culture, but only when you look at the discipline, not the doctrine. So it's not a matter of doctrine, they say, but discipline. And as such, no pope can be bound by a previous pope. So Paul VI had the right to make this change to the new missile, they say. Now, let's look at our next slide. At the Council of Trent, this is session 21, chapter 2. 
Listen to this. In the dispensation of the sacraments, the church may, according to circumstances, times, and places, determine or change whatever she may judge most expedient for the benefit of those receiving them or for the veneration of the sacraments. And this power has always been hers. Man, when I wrote that, I, I stepped down a little bit from my radical traditionalist approach. All right? So the traditionalist, <laughs> notice this dialogue I got going on, will say, okay, but keep only the form of the mass that focuses and fosters faith and reverence. And that's the TLM. Ah, now they got a point. So I think in a doctrinal method, you can say this is valid, but now they're going to come back and say, I want to go to reverence now and fostering of the faith. Now we open up a different dialogue. All right, so what is the traditional mass, Latin mass anyway, the TLM, the traditional Latin mass? I keep saying the Latin mass, it's traditional Latin mass, TLM, traditional Latin mass. All right, there was a great article in the Pillar last year. Let's take a look at our next slide. The Roman Missal is the church's book, as we showed here, of prayers and instructions for celebrating the Mass in the Latin Rite. All right, new editions of the Missal are periodically re released. The major reform of the Roman Missal following Vatican II was approved by Paul VI. We showed his picture. In what year was it approved? Does anybody know? Wasn't right at Vatican II. Came several years later. It was 1969. Now the scary thing is, can you have a worse year than 1969? Woodstock and burning bras and the sexual revolution and, and, and radicalness that defied authority, obedience was squashed upon. Truth was changed. In the midst of all that, here comes the release of this new missile. Now, it was actually promulgated in 1970. It was actually published in 1970. But it has been updated several times. The most recent, when was this missile most recently updated? 2008 was one, and then we had a revision afterwards. I think, was it 2011, we had the, uh, the changes of the words, uh, of the words in the mass, the responses and whatnot. So some... They traditionally, the traditionalists missed, and I'm one of them, missed the old right. So in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI introduced the terms ordinary form and extraordinary form. I had always thought they went way back to Trent. No, because there was no ordinary form then. It was all in the extraordinary form. That's the Trinitine Mass. Now, he described... That these are the two most prominent forms of the Roman rite. What is the Roman rite? That's the masses celebrated in the Latin rite. Got all that? So let's look at our next slide. The ordinary form of the mass, which you see on your screen, which you see here at this altar every day, is contained in the current version of this Roman missal, according to Paul VI. It is the form of the mass introduced when the liturgy was reformed in the years following Vatican II. Now, if you go to the Mass at your local parish, you probably have the Mass in the ordinary form. All right? 
Now, the extraordinary form of the mass is celebrated according to what I said earlier, the 1962 Roman Missal, and sometimes from even missiles issued earlier than this. It's not just this, all right? This, the, sometimes we use missiles even before that were in place before the reforms of Vatican II or even 1962, all right? This, as I said, was promulgated by John the 23rd. So we refer to this as the Missal of John the 23rd. So poor Paul VI and John the 23rd are probably duking it out in heaven, right? You know, because this is each of their missiles. But I, I say that with lovingly jest because absolutely not. They're both looking at us saying, what are you guys not getting here? Why aren't you listening to Pope Benedict and see the continuity between the two? All right, so Pope Benedict gave us Summorum Pontificum, as I said, at 2007 or 2007, modo proprio, permitting the Latin Catholic priest to celebrate the extraordinary form privately and in public without needing permission of the bishop. All right, so before 2007, priests had generally required permission from the local bishop to offer the traditional Latin Mass. Now, let's talk about this a little bit of the Mass before we break the mass. All right. And again, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about how to celebrate the Latin mass. If you came here for this video, because it was titled the Latin mass, we will be doing that in the future. But I am not yet comfortable with the Latin mass, mainly because I can't sing. <laughs> and my Latin pronunciation is not the best, as you can hear. But that's pride. That's pride. I need to get over that pride and not worry that the Mass is the most irreverent appearing because I'm mispronouncing or I'm singing terribly. I got to get over that. What I got to realize is, people, if you think that I'm irreverent just because I can't sing, I need to not worry about that. What matters that God sees is what's in the heart of the priest. What's in the heart. And I will give my heart to this liturgy. I give my heart and my life to the liturgy. A priest, if, if a terrorist breaks in like Father Richard, celebrating the Mass in Nigeria, and 12 armed terrorists came in, threatened to blow up the church with all the worshipers in there. They blocked the doors. Each door was stationed with a terrorist. Terrorists came in. Father Richard celebrating Mass. They're going to blow everything up. The people said that Father Richard did not stop the Mass. How many other people would run for the doors or when they saw him coming in would have Dolt bolted. No, Father Richard stayed. He was not going to stop the Mass. A priest never stops the Mass. You know what happened? Those 12 terrorists came in, and the leading terrorists came in, and all of a sudden, in the midst of all the commotion, he fell to his knees and looked up and went into a trance. The others were followers. It was Boko Haram, and when the leader looked up, he stood up and he told all the others with him, 
Jesus Christ is Lord, and Mary is his mother. All of a sudden, the other guys are like, huh? A grace overcame them, and this Christmas, all of them entered the Catholic Church. Can you get any more incredible than that? I believe 100% that was because of the courage and the truth and the love of Father Richard. Do we have that love for the faith? That's incredible. And so the Mass, this traditional form of what Benedict said now, we should be able to, he gave the permission of the priest to be able to celebrate it. So the Novus Ordo Mass, he was not saying is invalid or inferior. What is Novus Ordo, man? That's short for Novus Ordo Messe. Now this scares some people. Translated means the new order of the Mass. Now we have to look at that in perspective. And we're going to talk more about that as we go along. So let's look at our next slide. The traditional Latin Mass, or the TLM, or the Trinitine Mass, uses the terms, all of those are for the extraordinary form. The extraordinary form of the Mass has three options. A high Mass, a solemn Mass, and a low Mass. All right, at the high Mass, the priest celebrating chants or sings all of it, basically. All right, most of the liturgical prayers are chanted, he makes more frequent use of incense during the liturgy. Let's look at that picture. Is that not incredible? I believe that might be St. John Cantius, my friends in Chicago. They, I went to seminary with them. They, their charism is celebrating Mass in the extraordinary form. So even with all the changes of Pope Francis, they're allowed to maintain celebration of that Mass. Now, they make more use of incense during the liturgy, a large number of altar servers. Some responses of the congregation are even sung by a choir called a scola. We always hear people refer to scola as, you know, you go to some college campus and there's the college scola. That all comes from the church. All right. So a high mass is also called a misse cantata or a sung mass. So in the traditional Latin mass, the high mass is the Misa cantata, the sung mass. Now, then there's the solemn mass, which is like a high mass, but the priest is assisted by a deacon or a sub and or a subdeacon, or sometimes those roles are filled by even a priest in the role of a deacon. You know, a priest is always a deacon. I can actually serve that mass with Father Kaz being the deacon. When a priest is, when a deacon is ordained a priest, he never stops being a deacon. Okay, and so the next one is a low mass. Now the priest, and you know what? This is what I can do. The priest says it rather than sings it. The priest does. He, he recites the liturgical prayers. There is no scola and the liturgy is much quieter. It's briefer. And, 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 and that's the one that I am going to get permission and want to ask our general room to be able to learn and do. It's beautiful. Now, however, just because if you're not able to go to a Latin Mass doesn't mean 
we don't have or shouldn't have reverence in the Novus Ordo. Let's look at our next slide. You ever hear the term ad orientum? Ad orientum is a term that means to the east. All altars, when a church is built, are supposed to be in the direction of the east. Why? Because Christ is going to come from the east. He's the sun that rises. Where does the sun rise? From the east. And refers, this means, this ad orientum means to the east and refers to mass offered by a priest who is mostly facing the altar. So do you see in our mass? Do you see it? I don't know if Brother Mark can show it. Our tabernacle is on the high altar. So previous to Vatican II, our priest would celebrate the mass straightforward, and that was the altar. So this was the way the priest celebrated the mass. That was the high altar. That is the high altar. And so the priest <clears throat> would face the altar with the people, not versus popolom, which is towards the people. I was kind of equated to an airline. When you go into the airline and you sit in your seats, do you want the pilot facing you or do you want the pilot facing forward? Okay, so... Nowadays, he'll, he'll still get us there because everything's mechanically um, controlled. But all masses in the extraordinary form are offered ad orientum. And in some places, the practice is growing in popularity in the ordinary form as well. You know, you can have an ordinary form mass in a novus ordo, ad orientum, and in Latin. So people who want to abandon the mass because it's not in Latin, you can have mass. Father Kaz celebrates the Novus Ordo in Latin. So this is important. Now, some liturgists say that actually ad ad orientum is the proper way to celebrate the ordinary form. Vatican II never said to turn the altars around. Vatican II never told the nuns to drop their habits. Okay. And so the vernacular, let's talk about that. The vernacular means the local language, the language that is spoken by the people of a region or a nation. So our vernacular is English. You know, um, some uh, cities or locales are Spanish. It was before then, <clears throat> um, it was before then celebrated mostly in Latin, before Vatican II, and still in Latin in the extraordinary form, but it doesn't mean we can't celebrate Latin now in Latin, or the Mass in Latin. We can. So the official text of the ordinary form is also written in Latin. Right? And the ordinary form can be and sometimes is offered, as I said, in Latin itself. People usually refer to such a Mass as the Latin Novus Ordo. The Latin Novus Ordo. Many will say that the extraordinary form is more reverent. This is true. The prayers, though, we have to look at now the beauty of the extraordinary form. I, I, I think there's so much beauty that I don't want to deny this. I, I don't want to spend not time talking about this before we finish this talk for today because the extraordinary form is so beautiful. And in fact, the prayers, the prayers, they're not watered down. 
blessings in the new rite, if you read the blessing of an advent wreath or the ashes or the palms, they actually don't bless the advent wreath, the, the palms and the ashes. They bless the people. Now, you can argue that that might be more important. So I've yet to form a conclusion on that because in some sense you could think, well, it is more important to bless the people. But then you don't have the true sacramental because that item isn't blessed. So we have to look at this. So blessings are blessings, like I said, the ashes of the palms, not the people. That's the old right. Now, the other things that really woke me up in the extraordinary form, do you know that in every mass, Mary is mentioned eight to ten times? You know how many times Mary, outside of her feast day, is mentioned in the Novus Ordo Mass? Maybe one, sometimes two, depending on what you read. And so this doesn't make the Mass invalid. It doesn't mean in any less grace. It's just, why not invoke our Blessed Mother? Um, St. Michael is mentioned multiple times in the extraordinary form of the Mass. But other than his feast day, really isn't mentioned in the Novus Ordo. Again, that doesn't make the Novus Ordo invalid. It's just a question of, let's not forget to invoke him. Why do you think I say the St. Michael prayer at the end of the Mass? Invoke him. All right? Genuflection. Do you know when I genuflect, how many times does the priest genuflect at that altar? After elevation of the host, and after elevation of the precious blood. In the Latin Mass, he genuflects before and after. So there is beauty. Now, don't go too far, though, because we can then reject the Nova Sordo Mass. Yes, we got to get things back on track. Benedict even said this. I'm shocked. I'm hoping it's not true. I just hope it's some secular media place telling us that only 30% of Catholics believe in the real presence. Do you know what the number was when they did the study on those who go to the extraordinary form of the Mass? 97%. 97%. Let's find the beauty, as Benedict said, in the continuity here. All right. I'll just watch a quick video, and then we're going to come back and wrap up the day. We're not going to do the full talk today. We're going to split this in half. And so let's have Brother Mark show just a short video of the beauty of the extraordinary farm. It's literally only 30 seconds. An incredibly beautiful, not that every Mass isn't beautiful. You gotta know what's going on. We can't look just at the aesthetics, but when the aesthetics promote and foster reverence, it's powerful. Now, that doesn't mean that the Novus Ordo shouldn't or doesn't have reverence. It should. If you go to a beautiful, solemn Novus Ordo Mass with incense and beautiful singing, 
you also should foster reverence in you. Okay, so this is important. Now, I want to talk just real briefly about a couple of times because one of the reasons we don't want to go too far is because it can become schismatic. You ever hear of SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X? This is a priestly fraternity which actually opposes all of Vatican II and the liturgical reforms. <clears throat> and it is in, according to the Vatican, imperfect communion with the church. Now, this, guess when this was started? 1970. When was the new missal promulgated? 1970. All right. And so Archbishop Lefebvre was excommunicated in 1988. I did hear that he was reconciled back to the church before he died. But he, he ordained four bishops without permission of John Paul. Now, <clears throat> Pope Benedict XVI lifted the excommunication of the bishops in 2009. At the same time, he clarified that the Society of St. Pius X, SSPX, had no canonical status and said its priests could not exercise ministry. However, the church is working on this. They want dialogue. The society has had discussions now with the Vatican over the years about re-entering into communion. Pope Francis has actually continued. People think he's all against the, the Latin Mass. He's actually speaking with them. All right, he extended to the priests of the society, the faculty to hear confessions during the year of mercy. And after the year of mercy ended, he continued it. In 2017, Pope Francis said that they are under limited circumstances that diocesan bishops could give their priests the faculty to marry, not get married, to marry others, all right? These sacramental concessions have focused on the spiritual good of Catholics who attend those services, those chapels that SSPX runs. So Pope Francis has emphasized that he does not want Catholics who attend those services to be without the possibility of confession or a way to get married validly. So many bishops have also, though, said we discourage it because they're not in communion with Rome. So watch, keep watching, see what happens with the church in that dialogue. Now there's another one that actually is in communion, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. The FSSP. Now, this is a society of priests that is in full communion with Rome. Its founders were initially part of St. Pius X, but they broke away in 1988 after that ordination of the four bishops without approved uh, permission. So these founders, uh, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, had support of John Paul II, they wanted an association of priests to celebrate Mass in the extraordinary form. Now, while at the same time retaining full communion with the church, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So today, with the permit, uh, permission of local bishops, you might have them in your diocese. Uh, they're in dioceses around the world, including many in the U.S. They actually have two seminaries, one in Germany, and one in Nebraska. All right, so the vast majority of those who follow the traditional Latin Mass are in communion with Rome. So let's finish today with one last segment, and then uh, we'll stop for the day. But this is Extraordinary Form 101. I did a DVD called the Divine Mercy 101. I, I like the 101. 
And so one who did a really good work on this was Thomas Woods uh, out of Catholic Answers. Again, I always, I always like Catholic Answers to confirm what I'm saying or doing. Now, this is very interesting. This is where we finish today with his, his work. But on July 7th, 2007, as we said, Benedict declared the traditional liturgy of the Roman Rite. Okay, this is what I've been talking about. He said it's never been abrogated. What does abrogated mean? Squashed, suppressed. Benedict came out and said it's never been abrogated. And now it's going to be officially available to the priests without needing permission alongside the new liturgy of Paul VI. So Benedict took these two and approved them both and brought them together, that a priest can celebrate either, okay, the ordinary form of Paul VI or the extraordinary form of John XXIII. Now, this is what's interesting, because basically Pope John Paul II had allowed the traditional Latin Mass on only a limited basis. So Benedict was even more open than even John Paul was. And so he issued that motu proprio sumorum pontificum, which I talked about before, and he removed the restrictions. He said, what early generations held as sacred remains sacred for us too. And it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. I don't think anybody's calling it that. But he wanted to make sure. For a long time, people referred to the new liturgy, the Mass of 1970, as the new rite, and the older rite that was of Pius the, or John the 23rd as the older liturgy. The most recent version, this Missal of 1962, he called it, people say, the old rite. Now, Benedict said that we should instead think of these missiles as having two forms of the same single Roman rite. This is where he differs from Francis. Francis sees this as two rites. And Francis says, I want to bring back one rite. This is what it's been in the church for 2,000 years. Benedict saw it as two, not two rites, but two forms of one rite. The extraordinary form, the ordinary form of the same rite. And so rather, <clears throat> he said here, he said, Benedict said that we should instead think of these missiles as being two forms of a single Roman rite, rather than as two separate rites, ordinary and extraordinary, with different calendars. Fascinating. So the extraordinary form operates, what's the difference between the two? Now, if you ever get these meditations, like I was reading some of these church meditations, I was like, nothing matches. You say the reading of the day, the fourth Sunday in, or the third week Wednesday in ordinary time, and I would read it, and it wasn't matching the readings. I was getting frustrated. This was back when I was in North Carolina. And that's because in the extraordinary form, there's only a one-year cycle. So the readings only appear, or I should say, appear once a year, which means you get the same readings used on the same exact dates every year. While the ordinary form of the Mass uses a three-year cycle. 
So you only hear the same readings every three years. In a way, that's kind of advantageous because you cover more readings of Scripture. We refer to it as cycle A, B, or C. And so every third year, you'll hear that same reading again. Now, even with this hand missile, this is called a hand missile, you may find yourself a little lost when you go to the, uh, the, the traditional Latin Mass. When the scriptural passages are read in the context of the Mass, they are read in Latin. Now, Father Kaz was telling me when he was a kid, they never read the readings in Polish. Everything was in Latin. Now, before the Mass, they will read the readings and actually even do the homily in the vernacular, even as part of the Latin Mass. Though, of course, you can read along the readings, the English side and the Latin side. Okay, so don't get intimidated. Um, so anyway, before the sermon, some priests will repeat the readings in the vernacular. Let's look at our next slide. Let's take a look at our next slide. Now, the question becomes, Father, I want to go to the, the Latin Mass, but do I kneel to receive? Do I have to receive on the tongue? Do I say amen? Yes, yes, and no. Yes, you kneel to receive. Yes, you receive on the tongue. No, you do not say amen. Really, Father? Yes, communicants kneel at communion rail. Do you know, actually, we have a communion rail downstairs. I'm like, I want to go see it. And the communion rail goes around the inner side of the sanctuary. Now, what's the purpose of the communion rail? It's supposed to separate heaven from earth. But you get so close that they are united in holy communion. And so inside the sanctuary is the holy of holies. This is where Jesus is present. This is heaven. And he will come from heaven and touch you here on earth. And the communion rail divides it. In the Eastern church, people will get angry by that. Look at the Eastern church. They have big walls. You don't even see the other side. I went to mass in the East. I was like, where is it? This is like 20 years ago. I'm like, where is it? So we have to understand the purpose. And so the extraordinary form places great emphasis on avoiding any possible profaning of the Eucharist. Now, the priest, if you notice, he'll hold the ciborium, sometimes awkwardly. Why? Because he doesn't separate his thumb from his forefinger. So you see me sometimes grab the chalice, hold the chalice. Because the priest does not separate the thumb from the forefinger in fear the particles will fall. It's a very essence. All right, it would be out of place after that kind of care to place the host in somebody's hand. Now, that does not mean you're sinning because the church is granted an indult in the Novus Ordo to receive in the hand. In the extraordinary form, you don't, you receive on the tongue. Okay? Now, the communicant, does he say amen? And by the way, it's not amen, it's amen. Do we say it? The priest says it as he places the host on your tongue. The priest does not say the body of Christ. 
like we do. He says, may the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto everlasting life. Amen. Interesting, huh? All right. The priest, does he turn his back on the people? Well, that's probably not the best way to phrase it. Together, they face our Lord. All right. When a general leads his troops into battle, he doesn't face the troops. He's charging with them. Man, on D-Day, you ever see the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan? One of the most incredibly powerful moments, 10 minutes in cinematography history. And a lot of the guys that were still alive said it was very accurate. That's why when we went on our pilgrimage to France and I stood on that beach, knowing what happened there on June the 7th, 1944, you're humbled. But all those guys that charged the beach, they were all looking straight ahead. And so we can see the meaning. It does not mean that I should never go to a mass again because the priest is looking at me. That's the big difference here. We can't say that either. So Benedict it said, Pope Benedict in 2004, that facing with the people is actually apostolic tradition, meaning it goes back to the apostles. So somebody might ask in the extraordinary form, will I get anything out of it because I don't speak Latin? Definitely. For centuries, the popes insisted on the value of the non-vernacular mass or language in the mass. You know, it's easy to follow along in the missal. It's not difficult especially if you've gone to Mass a few times and you know like the consecration because the bells will ring, all right? So let's look at our next slide. John the 23rd, he said, quote, it is fitting, all right, that the language it uses should be noble, majestic, and non-vernacular. Talking about the Latin. So why? Why would we want to do that? Well, that way we don't focus on being American or Canadian or French, we focus on being Catholic. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, you can encounter the same mass anywhere, the beauty and the universality of the church. Vatican II says the use of the Latin language is to be preserved. It was never told to be taken out completely. This is in Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 36.1. It declared that the faithful should be, and this is now um, the document in paragraph 54, be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. Now we're talking about the Novus Ordo. And so does the laity do anything? The whole purpose was to involve the laity. Now here's what's interesting. Yes, in the extraordinary form, the laity does a lot. The laity prays the Mass. All right. No activity could be more powerful than praying the mass. Participation in the mass does not mean just physical activity. Participation is listening. Listening is participation. Does your spouse ever look at you and say, are you listening? Because you're not participating. She's not asking you to say anything. <laughs> 
Listening is active participation. And so Father Ken Myers quote said, silence in the mass is perhaps the greatest need of modern man because we need to peer into our souls and to see what God sees. In the TLM, we can listen to God's voice within us. Now that doesn't mean we don't hear the Lord's voice in the Novus Ordo. It's what you do with it. You can make silent time. Do you come before the mass and pray? Do you come back to your pew after Holy Communion or do you bolt for the door? Well, right there, Father Chris says I should only go to the extraordinary form mass. No. Showing the beauty of the extraordinary form because Benedict himself said the beauty and reverence of the extraordinary form should help the ordinary form and people in the ordinary form who realize participation of the laity should help the extraordinary form. It's a beautiful connection. So Catholics, we always emphasize external actions. We do, rather than interior union with the Eucharistic sacrifice. In a high mass, there can be active participation by singing, singing the mass parts. Final slide. Let's read what Ratzinger said. Actually, um, yeah, Ratzinger, as he was in 1997. The old right should be granted more generously to all those who desire it. It's possible to see what could be dangerous or unacceptable, or no, it's, it's impossible to see what could be dangerous or unacceptable about that. A community is calling its very being into question when it suddenly declares that what until now was its holiest and highest possession is now strictly forbidden. And when it makes the longing for it seem downright indecent. We don't want to do this. It's not some radioactive moon rock that we are trying to avoid. It's not that at all. We should embrace it, not attack those who desire it. At the same time, as my friend in Alabama said, I don't want to be attacked for being part of the Novus Ordo, constantly being told that I am wrong, that I'm invalid, that my mass is invalid. Can't we just all get along, right? <laughs> and so the Pope is also concerned that the way in which the new missile was introduced gave the impression of a rupture with the past. Now, we're going to break here, but I want you to join me next week because this is really what I wanted to get to today, but I ran out of time. And Father Kaz wanted to make sure I put into my talk. And I already had it in, Father Kaz. I already had it in. The beauty of the Novus Ordo. All the attacks that we get, that it doesn't foster reverence, and it doesn't foster this or that. Yes, I'm going to explain that. This is not untrue. We are, it doesn't foster, there's nothing inherent to the Novus Ordo Mass that is irreverent. But the way that we react to certain parts of the Mass can become irreverent, such as the kiss of peace. Do we start touring around the building giving high fives as our Lord is on the altar? It's not inherently irreverent, but yet that's what some do. Now, I'm going to give you next week, we're going to walk through the Mass because there's a lot of attacks on the Mass, such as it lost the sense of sacrifice. I'm going to prove to you it's full of the sense of sacrifice. It lost belief in the real presence. I'm going to prove to you that this Mass has enormous belief in the real presence. 
There's an attack that the priesthood now has just become, the priest has just become one of the people. I'm going to show you that in this mass, the priest is maintained in persona Christi. So I hope you will join us next week. I hope I'm here next week. And, and so next week, which is today is the 15th, right? 14th. So Saturday. Okay. So Saturday was supposed to be my talk on Vatican II. I'm going to finish with part two of this extraordinary form mass. And what we're going to talk about is the new mass illegitimate. We're going to answer that question. And we're going to go through it. We're going to answer the question of what about the Protestants that served at Vatican II? Didn't they stick in Protestant influence? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Pope Francis's changes to the Latin Mass and the restrictions. Then we're going to talk about what some theologians say about all this, like Tim Staples and Scott Hahn. Then we're going to answer the question, where do we go from here? And how have the bishops responded to this um, modo proprio of Pope Francis about the restrictions on the new mass or the extraordinary form mass. So we hope you will join us next week. For those of you who joined us and didn't get the whole of it, I apologize. But I figure if I kept you here much longer than this, then um, that would not be fair. So we pray that you'll join us next week. Um, to finish, um, please uh, pick up uh, one of the ways that we spread divine mercy. If you go up on your screen, um, is becoming a Marian helper. Please join us at micprayers.org. This is a beautiful way. I don't, it's, it doesn't cost a dime. If you never donate anything, that's just fine. That's not what I, I mean, again, I've always said, yes, we've got to pay the light bill and the heating bill and our food bill and our, you know, gas and, and all that. We have to pay our employees. We do. We get that. But, and if God calls you to that, oh, I'm so thankful. But if you can never donate a dollar, I will still pray for you just as hard. And the beauty of being a Marian helper is we pray for each other. And so become a Marian helper. And we, you receive the graces of all our prayers when you just make a simple prayer for all the other Marian helpers. It's like the true community of Acts of the Apostles. And then the last two slides, this is a really difficult time. I'm getting, I'm getting emails all the time. And, and, and you want to talk about really bittersweet so sad that the book I wrote on suicide and I'm sorry um, we'll go to that minute the, the divine mercy book the divine mercy book is selling very well it's still the really I feel a powerful way to explain what divine mercy is I'm sorry I messed brother Mark up on the order of the slides so understanding divine mercy you can get it at shopmercy.org or 800-462-7426 if you can't afford it Peter is in today if you truly can't afford it, I will send you a free copy. Call him at 413-298-1303 or email him at peterjames at marian.org, M-A-R-I-A-N.org. And then finally to finish, this is the book. Uh, it's called After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You. This book is not just about suicide. It's about any kind of suffering or loss. It'll help you understand God's mercy in the time of suffering. But this book, sadly, is selling more now than four years, three years ago when I wrote it. That bothers me in one sense, 
because you never want there to be a suicide, but in another sense, it gives me hope that people are reaching out to God. And so if you know anybody who is struggling, has had a loss of any kind of death, even not suicide related, please get a copy. And I'll tell you one thing, that is definitely a book I will send for free. Especially if you know somebody who's lost a child, I am never going to ask them to pay a dime. You tell me who it is, I will send it to them. You want it, I'll send it to you. So we pray because it is through this liturgy that these graces that we need of God are given to us. And we hope that you'll join us next week for the second part of this talk because we're going to answer all of the questions that call the Novus Ordo Mass invalid so that you will see the Novus Ordo Mass is beautiful and valid, is different, and we're going to explain those differences and we're going to help you understand the beauty of both. And we will explain why Pope Francis did what he did. The answer might surprise you. Why he did what he did. It's not just what you think. So please join us next week. And until then, may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. The talk is over. Thanks be to God. God bless everybody. Thank you for coming and we'll see you next week. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.